This is O Ship, the show where experts and leaders look back at their biggest moments of failure just so you can avoid making them. And there is no one better to squeeze the naked truth out of our charismatic guests than your host, Chameleon Collective Founding Partner, Freddie Laker. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another week of O Ship. This week, we're going to talk about a subject that I'm personally very passionate about, and I'm getting an opportunity to chat with someone else that's very passionate about, and that's doing business at a global level. For those of you who have not known me for a long time, I've had the opportunity to live and work in the US, in the Netherlands, in the UK, and also in China. Part of my career, I've had an opportunity to work on a lot of big global organizations like Coca-Cola or Unilever or professional services firms like Sapien. And doing business at a global level is both a great opportunity, but also really challenging. And so today I've got a guest on called Uva Hook. Uva has been the CMO for firms like Origina, the global payments platform, World Remit, co-op financial services, as well as a media leader for firms like GenX or Direct Partners or even OMD Worldwide, where he was the global digital lead uh, for the Visa Global business. Beyond all that, he's also worked with me at Camillion Collector for four years and has become a really good friend of mine. And one of the things I've enjoyed most about getting to know Uva is, is understanding of global business, particularly between the US and Europe. He's German, but living in the Netherlands, and when we met, because I was living there working with Bain Capital and the luxury stroller company Bugaboo, but Uva had just recently come back to the Netherlands after spending over 20 years living in Los Angeles. And so I just really feel like he's got his finger on the pulse, what works across markets and some strong opinions on what's going to help people to be successful in 2023, which is very likely to be a very challenging year. So with that, I welcome you to today's O-Ship, focusing on business growth opportunities between the USA and Canada. Just kidding, Europe. (laughs) Uva, welcome to O-Ship. How are you? I'm very good. I have a question before we start to you. So how long have yeah. you been living in the United States now? Too bloody long. <laughs> but no. you still say Los Angeles. I know. I should know better, right? I need a German guy to correct me to actually pronounce it wrong. And, you know, and, I I, and I'm consciously aware that I've been saying it wrong for pretty much my entire life. When I used to live in LA and when I used to fly British or Virgin, right? This Los Angeles just always irked me. I don't know if like, you know, you busting my balls as a German about pronouncing American words is not nearly as humiliating as what my English friends used to do to me when I was a kid. And they would literally get the news on and just make me read out English towns and then watch me butcher them and then laugh hysterically as I went through it. I think I called the River Thames the River Thames one time when I was like seven. Uh And they're still razzing me about it now at 45. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, oh. you know, the, the joy of dealing across multiple cultures. <laughs> so, exactly. so, Uva, on that note, I'd love to just kind of set the tone for today's episode. I've given a bit of information on, on your background, but, you know, why do you think you're uniquely qualified or well qualified to have this particular conversation that we wanted to have today? Yeah, because I grew up in Germany and I studied there and I worked in an agency in Germany for a few years and then I immigrated to the United States. I won the green card in the lottery. Oh, uh, nice. 
Yeah, it wasn't like a decision that I made. I'm going to immigrate now. It's just uh, suddenly the State Department said, you won the green card. And then a year later, I was in Los Angeles and then worked, started to work for um, mostly American companies in the beginning. So American brands, I would say, so Honda and Acura, some of the European clients as well. But then over time, I uh, became much more involved in the global brand business, having worked in the U.S., having the cultural understanding of Europe, but also then working with a lot of audiences in the APAC region and Latin America gave me kind of this global overview of the world when it comes to marketing. While global marketing is very challenging because it's so complex, normally you're dealing with matrix organizations and that's not for everybody, but it's also a joy to be in touch with I mean, when I worked with Visa, I oversaw 56 countries in APAC and Europe and Latin America. It's just a joy to, to be with these people, not in person, but like over the phone and, and have these interactions with them. So I always enjoyed that. And just on a personal level, I'm intrigued. What's your favorite place you've ever lived? Uh, Amsterdam, where I live I now. I love Amsterdam. I, if someone yeah. told me tomorrow I had to leave the U.S. and I had to move someplace, that's exactly where I'd want to go to. Yeah, especially after living 20 years in Los Angeles, the yeah. distances, right? Like um, yeah. when you're younger, or the first 10 years, I enjoyed going to all these venues. It didn't matter to me that it took me an hour to get there, two hours waiting for parking. Yeah. But then I always give this example. When you live in LA, you want to go see you two, you go to the Rose Bowl. It takes you three hours to get to your seat because of drive and parking. And then takes you three hours to go back home. And then you have three hours concert in between. I saw you two, I don't know, four years ago here. Yeah. And after they played the last song, I was in bed 15 minutes later. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, well, it's always nice when you can say, hey, where do you want to live? And you're like, exactly where I'm living now. So yeah. that's, that's, that's a great, great place to be. So I just want to set one bit of context today before we dive in. When we talk about Europe, we're not talking about the EU, the European Union. You know, we're talking about continental Europe. So for all intents and purposes, I am including the UK in this conversation, um, even though they're dealing with their own unique set of challenges post-Brexit. I think we're going to weave them into this broader European conversation. So I've got a couple of areas I'd love to pick your brain on today. Let's start with some of the basics of why we're even having this chat. So what does the business environment feel like in, in Europe right now? Good start to talk about the EU and, and Europe, because I would definitely have a conversation saying that Great Britain is part of this European conversation, but it's also an outlier because the Great Britain market is much more closer when it comes to marketing aligned with the US than any other European market. That's not only based on the language but it's also based on regulatory environment in the UK, which is much more laxer than it is in the EU. When it comes to the business environment, I'm pretty sure most of the uh, viewers and listeners are aware that um, we are dealing with a challenging environment right now due to the, A, the post-COVID inflation and uh, Ukraine war. We have, uh, our inflation is 10%, it's holding steady. When you are going to grocery markets, you can see that the packages are shrinking and the prices are increasing. So you really feel the change. It was a little bit scary in the summer because some of the predictions were that many industries would have to close down. 
because mm-hmm. they were afraid that uh, they wouldn't have enough energy, gas, etc., to keep the industry going, that uh, parts of Europe might be de-industrialized. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, certain areas like factories that built something with glass, once you shut down the factory, you cannot reopen it again. You have to rebuild the whole factory. Mm-hmm. So those those scary moments are kind of not there anymore. So the different governments in the EU and uh, Great Britain, they found ways to alleviate these concerns. So I don't think people are concerned about freezing or any blackouts in Europe. The environment in Europe has been improving. I think the biggest outlier in in Europe is Great Britain. I think Great Mm. Britain, that's widely known as Great Britain is a real crisis. Uh, Most economists say it's partly also because of Brexit. Not an economist, so I don't know that. But yeah, I think they're in for a real challenge in the next three years. And then they are, you know, Europe, the EU is 27 countries, right? So I mean, Netherlands, Netherlands is doing fine. Germany is doing okay. But then there are other countries in the South that are not doing as well or in the East. So it, it really is, which I think is a point that we're going to talk to. Europe is not Europe, right? We can talk about the U.S., which is one block in some ways, even though there are regional differences. But Europe is really, you have to look at it country by country. Uh, just remember at the end of the day, Uber, this is, this is the internet and the podcast. So you don't actually have to be an authority. You can say you read The Economist and people probably won't know the difference. And you just, and you just run with these opinions and people will just lean right into them. All right. <laughs> so, no, all jokes aside, uh, and I appreciate disclaimer, but I think, you know, a lot of today is, is about our opinions, you know, formed through our observations. Some of that is through, you know, what we're seeing in the news and some of that's through, you know, what we're seeing directly with the businesses that we interact with. And so I do think it's important that we kind of put that disclaimer out to, you know, that people are listening. I think people are interested to hear what other people are thinking and it's okay for us to have those opinions. But, you know, again, we're not, you know, we're not giving people financial advice or, or whatever. You talked about some of the trends you're seeing with people, how manufacturing might happen or the inflation rates. What are you seeing like, I mean, in terms of like how people are budgeting, how people are spending money, how's that impacting uh, maybe some of the ways that some of these businesses are behaving in the short term? Yeah, so this inflationary challenge that we are dealing with right now is felt by everyone, but it's not painful for everyone, mm-hmm. right? So it's really painful for the bottom third or, or even the 50%, the bottom 50%, the top 10%, so luxury goods, for example, are doing really well globally, also in Europe, because for them, it doesn't make a difference. You know, a gas, I don't even know what, I think the gas price here is $8 a gallon. So don't, you know, when Americans hear that, they're all <laughs> freak out. And we'll take it down a notch. Yeah. yeah, but for people that make good money, it hurts, but it, they don't really feel it, right? It's more like a little sting. When, when American comes to Europe, they always think it's very densely populated. But, you know, a big country like Germany has areas where people have to commute. Uh, 40, 50 kilometers to go to work, and they really feel it. So ones that don't have the good income, uh, they are the ones that are really, really struggling. Never heard these things before. I think in in England, they're opening now uh, warm rooms, uh, I think they call them. So this is for people that can't eat at home. They can go to a place like community center for two hours and sit in the warmth and then go can go home again to freeze. That's not everywhere. It's just things that I Crazy. hear, right? But uh, so I would say it's a weird thing. It's kind of like the 
layoffs that you see in the tech world. Mm-hmm. Professor Galloway calls this the Northern Face West layoffs because it's really mostly for software engineers right now. For other jobs, there are many open positions. Also here, many open positions when it comes to retail, when it comes to restaurants. So it's an odd environment right now that I've never seen before. Right, like mm-hmm. unemployment is very low, but people feel very stable right now. They feel like they don't know what the future will bring. I want to take it back a couple steps, and I think one of the things that when you start thinking about how the market react, I think is to understand the mindset and the culture of the people there. So a lot of our audience at on our ship is is U.S. based, and I think it's really easy for people to not necessarily be able to think outside their own thought paths or whatever you want to call it. Is because so much of that kind of just gets ingrained in us by the societies we get raised in. I think when you kind of stepping back and you start talking about it at a macro level, and we're obviously not talking about every exception or every person in each of these demographics, but at a macro level, what would you say are some fair assumptions about the mindset and kind of cultural differences across the U.S. and European cultures? One thing I would say is that the big difference when it comes to usage of technology is that some would call Americans naive or some would call Americans uh, curious, right? So the acceptance of new technologies or new platforms is much, much higher in the U.S. than it is in Europe. That's also based on privacy laws. So many countries, specifically the big ones like Germany and France, they're very concerned about privacy. The EU is very concerned about privacy. I mean, Twitter is facing real challenges with the EO commission in the next few months. You know, the way the way Musk is going with the company, we'll see how that ends up. But they have been constantly fined. Google has been, has been fined hundreds of billions of euros. Same with Facebook. Mm-hmm. In America, it's often just do it and then ask for forgiveness. And that really doesn't work in the EU because it's a very highly regulated environment. And People really wanted to, right? We have here a, uh, compared to the US, we have, I forgot the name of the law, but if you want um, to be forgotten by Google, if something happened to you and it's on Google search, you can actually ask Google to be forgotten, right? That's not something that you, you can do in the US. Right? So these- <laughs> I, I think if you ask most Americans, they'd be like, Google never forgets. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so they, they have these laws here. So that's one thing. I'm sure most of your viewers were in Europe. There's much less advertising here than in the U.S., right? Like the the U.S. spend of advertising is 1.4% of GDP. It's just for advertising. And in the in the, in Germany, it's only, it's half, it's less than half. Wow. Right? So the spend is much, much less here. Places like Times Square don't exist here. Whenever I come back to the U.S. and I often go back, I always feel, I can sense a difference, right? You turn on the television or you, you go outside when there are billboards everywhere, there's advertising everywhere, and that's not the case here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Americans have accepted that. So it's not something that American, it's just normal. When I lived in the U.S., it was normal for me, right? And I always mm-hmm. found it weird that they don't have enough advertising here, right? I'm a marketer, so, but th- that's definitely a, a big, big difference. The other thing is that when it comes to messaging, Americans often, the marketing is often about big splash, like make a big splash, make a big impact. And the European is more very slowly building, 
right? They, they're not really comfortable making that big splash. Like here in Amsterdam, but here in Amsterdam, I know people that live in the city and they drive a small car, but their mm-hmm. big car is parked outside the city because they don't want to be seen here having owning a big car, but when they're on the freeway, they want to have the big car. Yeah, so a a lot more understated kind of mindset. Yes, understated, Ah. you don't show off, right? Like, especially you've been here many times. So you're in Amsterdam, it's that while while I'm the only one that has curtains um, in in Amsterdam, uh, people, there's an openness here, transparency, but not showing off anything, right? That's very important to them. I worked for B2B firms in Europe and my mindset when I moved here was let's make a big splash. Let's dunk on the, let's dunk on the competition like you would in the US. They don't do that here. They don't like that here, right? They don't dunk on the competition and they want to have better arguments than just an overwhelming marketing clits. Let me uh, share a little bit of kind of how I look at this. One of the things I think is is so interesting when you hear about things like the American dream, and I think that concept, whether it's pushed by American movies, entertainment, you know, referenced in films, I think a lot of people internationally understand the concept of what the American dream is. And it's this, this sense of like going someplace and making it and being successful. And that is definitely intertwined typically with some form of a business normally. I don't think anyone says the American dreams like coming and becoming an actor or something, you know, that's a Hollywood dream, so to speak, not the American dream. And I think there's this innate sense of, you know, capitalistic love and a really deep appreciation for entrepreneurs that you don't see necessarily in other cultures. By the way, not always right. There's real hustle culture and a lot of people can put positive connotations around that. At the same time, you could argue that the Americans don't have great work-life balance and some people may not see it that way but there's this very much this kind of very capitalistic very strong kind of pull your britches up entrepreneurial kind of self-reliance culture and i think that because the u.s at this time is one of the most significant driving economic forces in the world they are going to tend to be a, a bit more resilient as we go into next year when i think i work you know to your point with with some of the european cultures the thing that I think kind of stood out to me the most, especially over the last couple of years, is a Camino Collector's been leaning in there, is a, a lot more conservative, I think, in how they approach the stuff. I think they will tend to play it a little safer, and that's not a good or a, a bad thing necessarily. I think it's just the mindset shift we we're talking about. And so for that reason, typically, unless you've got some of the really radical things happening, like happening in Europe right now, that means that there's more of a stability in kind of how and kind of how the economy happens. And so when really big things kind of rock the boat, I think the turtle protective like mindset kicks in. I think spending is going to kind of go you know way down. And I think people are going to, you know, really try and play it safe. I don't think Europeans kind of necessarily try and spend their way out of a recession like Americans might do, for example. The other thing I think is really important to call out I don't think it's talked about enough, and I'd love to get your reaction to this, is I think people talk about Europe and the U.S. as these big homogenous things. And the reality is like Europe is I mean, really, really different sometimes between these countries. I mean, the, the cultural difference from an Italy to a France to, uh, you know, a, a U.K. or a Germany or a Netherlands, I mean, is quite radical. You know, I think the same is inversed. 
but not as pronounced. So the Americans, I think, are more homogenous. They may not feel like that. You always talk about Americans, always talk about how divided the country may feel. But actually, on a lot of the like, buying behaviors, business behaviors, a lot of that stuff is actually really consistent. Maybe not on some of the more you know, culture war stuff that goes on and on these days. Uh, but I think that that's not the same in Europe. And so if you were a business owner or a business leader out there trying to grow a business, do you think it's kind of easier to be successful in the U.S. or easier to be successful in working in Europe? Just what you said, right? Like when, when you go to America, when you live in L.A. and you drive three hours, you're still in California, right? Or maybe you're, in Nevada, <laughs> right? you're still in America. There's a strip mall. There's a, the Denny's over there, whatever. You're on the freeway. If I take a train from Amsterdam to Paris, I'm in a different world. It's kind of the magic of Europe, right? It's like I'm in a completely different world that I experience here in Amsterdam. I can drive one and a half hours to Brussels. It's a totally different world, different language, different culture. So I always think that when you have a base here, let's say you have your company here in the Netherlands and you want to make a decision, do I expand to the U.S. or do I expand within Europe, which feels safer? to go in Europe, right? Because the markets are smaller. If I'm in Netherlands, I can expand to Belgium. The language is almost the same. Uh, I can go to Norway, to, to the Nordics, right? They all speak English. So I can have the website in English. But then once I go into Germany, France, Italy, Spain, I have to regionalize, localize everything. Right? Like your website has to be in German. Every communication has to be in German. What are you doing with your LinkedIn posts? You have to localize everything. Suddenly, there's a big complexity there. On the other hand, when you go to America, you have a bigger market. I mean, the European market is bigger than the market in the U.S., but Americans are 40 to 50% richer than Europe, so your opportunity is bigger in America, and the complexities are not there. Right. You will have challenges when you have a B2C product that you a person in uh, the messaging for a person in Los Angeles might have to be somehow different for a person in Oklahoma. It's maybe not even the states. It's more like the, when you live in a 20,000 people town in Mississippi and you live in San Diego, you have a completely different life experience. You're still American, but what you react to is different. But for example, B2B, a business owner in Mississippi has the same needs, challenges, problems that the business owner has in Oregon. Mm -hmm. So there's there's no difference there. You don't have to regionalize except when you want to go to the Hispanic or Latino market, right? But mm -hmm. I don't think that's a challenge right now. But mm -hmm. you don't have to regionalize anything. And you mm -hmm. can test much better in the U.S. than you can in Europe because you have a different marketing system. You can really micro-test DMAs, say like, okay, does this message work here? Does it not work here? Those things don't work in Europe. We can't do that really here. So you have, almost have to commit to a country here and then hope for the best. And as I mentioned before, uh, some call Americans naive, some call them curious. Americans are much more open to a new solution, to a new product, mm -hmm. service than Europeans are. Europeans are socially very liberal but they're in general when it comes to new ideas very conservative as you said mm -hmm. right? they're not really open to anything new they're always very skeptical when new things come up 
depends also, you know, once again, you have to make regional differences. The UK, for example, is the hotbed of fintech, of neobanks, often much more than the US, interestingly. But that's because of the city of London and their, their own uh, environment there. But in general, I would say that it's going to be harder for you to break through in Europe than it's going to be to break through in the US. Hmm. So in 2023, not to put you on the spot, since 2023, people are thinking about their budgets. First off, they're probably going, right, how do I make sure I survive? And then if they're lucky, they're going to go, how do I thrive? Talk about companies that like financial services, where I know you have a lot of experience, software, SaaS, things that don't have physical products. So your recommendation would be expanding stateside is the way to go. Yes. In general, yes. Depends, right? You cannot always say it, but yeah, definitely. I think that's the way to go. I also think just forget about regionalization or localization. You have to take a really close look at your product, right? I've been in companies where I work with companies where they spend so much money on performance marketing just to get new people in. And that made sense during the pandemic times, right? When you're a global payment provider and suddenly people in Kenya can't go to the local store anymore to pick up their money, they have to make do it through an app. It makes sense to get as many people as possible in. However, if your product is not perfect, the churn is going to be so high that in the end, you have such a leaky bucket that all the investment that you made in performance will just go away. It's really about the basics, right? Like you want to have the perfect product that a flawless, frictionless product people really want to use or service. And then you want to look really closely at your budget. The immediate reaction will be to cut down a lot of, of the performance marketing. But I, I warn against that. Or what many people are also doing is they hire mid-level people because they're cheaper to run their operation without really thinking about like, what does it really do to my company if suddenly I don't get these new people in? Because there's still an opportunity there. As, as I mentioned before, there's a bifurcated market out there, right? Like mm -hmm. some people are really struggling and some people are really thriving at the moment. And that mm -hmm. was the same during the pandemic. Right? Mm -hmm. Many people, I mean, actually the majority of people when it came to financial situation thrived during the pandemic. And some people are thriving right now, even though inflation is high, because they are not economically unstable. They have income. Uh, they don't have to worry about any of these things. So the market is still there. It really depends on what audience you're trying to target. Um, I think the other thing I think is really interesting about uh, where we're at uh, right now is if you were to try and say, look, you know, maybe you're a UK-based company or Netherlands, you know, a very you know, English-speaking country, um, and you're saying, right, I've, you know, I've got all the resources, I've got the talent, I've got the support, I, everything's in English already. And I think, again, in, in, in the UK in particular, you know, a lot of people may not be buying new good products and services that year, and, and it's very easy for you know, a country like that to do US side expansion. I just think it's easier than it's ever been. And I can, just speaking from personal experience, in the mid-2000s, I owned a digital agency that I opened a London office and I had to create like a UK entity and I had to hire my people through this new entity and I had to create new banking and new contracts to have independent phone systems and all this kind of stuff. And now, like, if you want to do this, and I've spoken about this on ship many times, this kind of democratization of access to incredible technologies that are really inexpensive that enable global business 
there's never been a better time. A couple of great examples of that phones, VoIP. You can literally have international phone numbers in your market for 15, 20 bucks that connect back to your phone system. Things like remote.com, uh, companies like this, what they do is they have companies in like you know, 100 markets worldwide or whatever it is. And, and if you want to employ someone in that other market, remote.com employs them. And they're like, like, like an intermediary. They handle all the employment law, you know, all that stuff. They're almost like a fully integrated HR you know, payments. You don't have to set up a company there. And then basically you contract with them. It allows you to kind of airdrop in stuff wherever you want, anywhere around the world. Uh, payments, you know, banking was a total nightmare before. Now there's platforms like Wise.com or Wise, which formerly TransferWise, you know, that makes it really easy at a business level to basically open virtualized bank accounts in any country that is just like a virtual front to your domestic accounts so that you can operate like your local business. And all these things are really, really, really inexpensive. So if people want to go out there and start doing this kind of stuff, they can. And I think that's you know, really exciting. And then you start layering in the marketing side, like you've been chatting about, you know, the accessibility to these kind of like customer acquisition platforms or ad platforms you can run from anywhere as long as you've got a great website that, you know, is localized localization for those of you who haven't done global things. It doesn't just mean language. It means like displaying the right phone number, displaying the most relevant content, you know, in whatever market is really not, not that hard in the big spectrum of things. So I want to change gears a little bit, Uva. You know, it would not be a ship uh, if I did not ask you for an O-ship question. I don't know if you've got anything in your kind of you know, history, whether it's either personal or something you've interacted at any point in your career, or even maybe just something you observed, where kind of globalization or thinking with a glo- you know, global business or international business has kind of gone wrong and I don't know, maybe either how you handled it or how that group handled it or what was what was kind of learned from it. Yeah, I give you actually actually two examples. Um, ah, nice. uh, yeah, I give you one that's uh, very with this topic and then I give you my darkest hour. As a <laughs> oh, good. I'm yeah. ready. Uh, so I worked for a, a big firm. Uh, I think we mentioned the firm before, so I don't want to mention it again. And I was overseeing the go- global media spend for them. And there's big sponsor for the World Cup and uh, oh, the very Olympic. timely, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, you can see them today. Uh, whenever you watch the games, you can see their name there. So they put a percentage on spend for each country for Facebook. They wanted to be a, one of the main spenders on Facebook. Uh, at that time, I think Facebook rewarded you with some special services or so on. And so as a global business, it's done by the CFO, right? The CFO then says, okay, U.S. gets, I don't know, 200 million, right? Kazakhstan gets two, uh, Russia gets 20 million, whatever. And so we got all these like allocation and then I don't know every country, obviously. And then come to find out in 10 of these countries, they don't have Facebook, right? But they still wanted to, or people can't access Facebook. Yeah. And then still there was a demand. No, we have to find a way to spend it on Facebook. It's like, yeah, but why would you spend <laughs> no it on there? Yeah, in Russia, it's VK, right? Like that's, yeah. uh, I don't know the situation right now. I don't follow that anymore. What's happening in Russia there when it comes to social. But um, at the time, yeah. Or Sochi, right? Winter Olympics where 
there was money assigned to Latin America countries, right? They don't even have the Olympics on TV. They don't watch yeah. that. It's nothing yeah. live. They might have a summary at the end of the day, but they don't, there's, there's nothing you can really sponsor. You know, it's very complex. Global is very, very complex. You have to deal with so many countries. There are challenges with language. There's challenge with some countries. You speak with people. Their English is very poor. My understanding of their language is poor, so I'm not blaming them. It's just like we have real problems communicating with each other. Today, I think it's a little bit easier at that time. There was no Zoom or, or team call or so on. At that time, it was just telephone. And you're sometimes on calls with 600 people. I'm sure you remember those calls where you just see it just clicking in people, clicking out people, just constantly, this noise behind you. But you have to find a way to be in touch with these regions, right, to understand what are they doing actually in this market? And not that you say top down, you have to do this now because uh, you're going to waste a lot of money. It's not going to be effective. Sounds like part of the learning that I, that I kind of interpret from that is one part I think is having people that appreciate perspective and understanding other cultures. You know, if you're a U.S. business, you can apply a U.S. mindset to the globe. If you're a French business, you can apply a French mindset to the globe. And so having people that can realize they have to step out of that mindset sounds like it's really important. Yeah, if I may, um, the yeah. other thing is also there's an implied arrogance in there when you're in the global headquarter. Yeah. yeah. And not the people working there, just everybody that's in global has this arrogance like we know what you should do. It has to be done this way in some ways that the global gives the direction when it comes to messaging, etc. You cannot have a committee of 50 countries saying like, okay, what is the messaging now? But you have to allow them to regionalize it. So this kind of arrogance that you have, and that's not American arrogance, just like this company was based in the US. It's a, it's a, sure it's it's a global thing, thing, I understand. Yeah, it's, it's, if, you're, if you're Michelin in, in, in France, I'm sure there's an arrogance in the headquarter too when it comes to global business. It's part of the system. It's funny enough, the, some of the biggest stuff that I've ever had an opportunity to work on in my career was also for World Cup, and but it was for doing the main Coca-Cola brand and then also for Powerade globally. And it was like, you know, 150 markets or whatever that we were, we were working in, and you're trying to drive it down globally. And the complexities are just kind of beyond comprehension, uh, you know, for, for most folks to, to wrap their head around. Okay, I got to hear the darkest hour <laughs> story. <Yeah. laughs> you yeah. can't dangle that one out and think yeah. I'm not no, going to no, go no. back for it. <laughs> yeah, so I was working for a, for a global automotive company in Southern California, and we uh, were responsible for the website and also for the for the marketing. That was around 2005 or so. At that time, website relaunches were big things, right? This, these were like today when you relaunch websites, it's kind of a thing that you do. It's kind of a yeah. rebranding of a store or so on. Yeah, yeah. But at that time, this was like a big deal. Right, new functionalities, flash-based. I mean, we, we did things they never done before, right? Really amazing. So I was overseeing the whole technology team and the creative team. And so I had to commit to a date, right? So I committed to this date and my clients sat in front of me and sat across of me and said, are you sure you will hit that date, right? And I went to my engineering team and said, you must be 100% sure you hit that date. They're like, absolutely no problem. We will hit that date. And so the CEO of that firm, the non-American CEO, announced the relaunch of the website, the date of it. Six weeks. 
<laughs> Rookie <It's> mistake. <laughs> the engineering team comes to me and says, we're not going to make that date. And uh, apparently what I heard is that I, all my blood was gone in my face and I aged like 30 years in like a minute. I'm like, are you kidding me? Right? So I had to drive to my client and tell him that. Right. Yeah. And so it, it became a real mess. Right. We kept the client. We launched a website, I think, three months later or so on. I mean, that moment when they said that to me, you just feel you're falling into a black hole. Right. Because it, it was my word. I said, I'm 100% sure that the, I can trust these engineers that we're going to make it. I had a, another good friend of mine who's actually been a guest on our ship before. So I, I've poked fun at him you know, at, at, to his face about this before, but I won't, won't mention my name. But yeah, it was the it was a huge site relaunch, and the day of the site relaunch, he without warning us, uh, emailed his entire contact list and put a press release out saying the new site was out. Of course, there was quirks because it was launch day on the new site, and then with a, like a mountain of egg on his face. It's why people when they open like a new restaurant, you quietly have a couple of run days before you you kind of tell the universe about it. Well, yeah. oh, ship, sir, I, I feel for you. <laughs> but this has been a really great episode. I've thoroughly enjoyed chatting with you. I think it's a great, great place to, to jump off. It's, I think in summary, it's a really challenging year that we've got ahead for both ourselves and any of the people listening to ship. And I think a lot of people are looking for a safe harbor and they're trying to say, you know, hey, where are my opportunities? Where can I still grow my business? It's your business or you're looking for avenues as part of a bigger company to try and create opportunity for that company. And international might be something that really people consider because where 10 years ago, you may have said that, that there are huge barriers to entry on that. I don't think those barriers to entry are, are the same today. And so, you know, the safe harbor maybe a little out of your area code or your postal code, depending on, on where you're from. Thank you for your time. For those of you watching and listening or ship today, thank you for your time. I would really appreciate you uh, tuning in. The best thing you can do to stay connected with us is visit oshipshow.com and, and subscribe to any of the channels, whether you like watching on video, you love listening on audio, all the links are there. Please give this episode a like or provide a rating. If you're you know, on one of the podcast platforms, if you don't mind leaving some comments and a star rating, we'd really, really appreciate it. This is a show that we will never commercialize. We will always do because we're passionate about it. And that kind of support makes it all worthwhile. One last final thought, Uba, if people want to follow you or, or uh, learn more about you or contact you, what are, what are the best places for people to do that? My first name is Uwe, U-W-E. So you, you can best find me on LinkedIn and get in touch with me there. Awesome. Uh, well, Uma, thank you again for your time. Thank you again for everyone tuning in, listening to this week's Earthship. And we'll see you next week on Earthship. <laughs>